0: Let's go back to Matthew 5, (coughs) and here we're down to verse 10, finally. As I've said before, and we'll rehearse briefly here, uh, there is an order in which Christ gave this section of Matthew 5, 3 through 12. And one of these, it's, it's like layers on an onion. Uh, one adds to the other and builds up to something. We have to recognize our spiritual lack, verse 3. We have to mourn about it in verse 4. Uh, we have to be meek and humble, understanding our frame in verse 5. Uh, as a result of those things, we need to hunger and thirst after the very elusive quality of righteousness. And in so doing we should come to realize that we need to have mercy on others who have got the same fight and battle that we do. And in showing mercy, we need to be holy, clean, and pure in heart with the right motives toward God, the right motives toward man. And if so, we should be able to then begin to make peace with God, with one another, and with all men as we possibly can, as Paul put it. And all of these have promise of being a part of the kingdom of God. Now, when you build on that and put those things together, and your life, your character begins to reflect down through verse 9, then you're going to have an effect. And that effect begins in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, what do you get for all this work from verse 3 through verse 9? All this work to be what you ought to be, to purify your mind, to work at making peace, to recognize your spiritual needs, to, to be working on that, to show mercy on others, to really become like God. That's the standard that he's laying out, is God's character here for us, and the character of his son who came, lived, and died for us. Now, once you achieve that, what is the net result? You're going to be persecuted for it. Put all this work in, and then you get nothing but trouble for it. Interesting, isn't it? You'll be blessed, though, if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, if you're persecuted for sin, there's no reward in that. If people give you trouble because of your weaknesses and your faults, there's nothing to be gained there. Peter said so. But if you are persecuted for doing what is right, then there is a blessing involved. It says so right here. And that the kingdom of heaven is waiting for those who attain righteousness and then who receive trouble, disdain, hatred for it. The reward doesn't come from man. The reward comes from God. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. Lying for my sake. They'll be telling lies about you, spreading rumors about you, probably imagining all kinds of evil things that you do. I mean, what did they do with Christ? If he drank a little wine, he became a drunk. If he didn't drink wine, then he was in trouble for that. You know, it didn't make any difference what he did. He was a righteous man. And being righteous, they... Hated it. It pricked their conscience. It bothered them. They weren't willing to live up to it. And when you can't match something, when you can't live up to it, what do you do? You put it down. You disdain it. You make light of it. As a carnal, natural human being. Make fun of that which you cannot imitate. Then what is our reaction to all of this? Here's a tough one in the next verse. They're going to say all manner of things about you. They'll lie about you. If you're truly righteous, they're not going to like you at all. And what are you supposed to do when they treat you like that? Rejoice! That goes against the grain of nature, doesn't it? I really don't like it when I hear all kinds of evil things that have been said about me or rumors about them. I don't even like it whether they're true or untrue. And you don't either. We really react when something is said about us. And we immediately label anyone a gossip or a talebearer or a tattletale or however we might phrase it, if something is said about us. And it might not even be something that's really that bad. It might just be something you know that families talk about. And yet we still get upset so very easily, being very, very thin-skinned and wearing our feelings right out on our sleeve where they can be knocked off so easily. Now, we need to be tender, we need to be thoughtful, we need to be easily entreated, but at the same time, we do not need to be easily offended. Uh, There's a difficult balance to walk there. Most of us are so defensive, if anyone says anything about us, we get absolutely upset immediately. We don't want to take criticism whatsoever. And we're not willing to think about it, pray about it, and see how much of it we actually do own. You know, usually when somebody criticizes you, there's probably some element of truth there. It may be 1% or 99%, but there's usually some element of truth there. Where there's smoke, there's fire. You can turn a hose on a burning trailer full of hay and find fire under all that smoke. Now, someone will hear this sermon later and they'll wonder what that was about. That's just too bad. I already talked about it in the announcements. It's not going on the tape. Personal. But usually, if there's criticism, you own part of it, half of it, three-fourths of it, 25% of it. You know, just by the very fact that I'm a human being, if somebody says something about me, I deserve part of it. You know, doesn't matter how small it was, but I'm human. Somebody told me this week that they were still human. Just busted my bubble. Couldn't believe it. How could that be? (laughs) Well, we all still are. But if we are being persecuted really for the right reasons, it says rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Now, we don't want just reward. We want great reward. Now, back when people gave gifts to each other at certain holidays and so on, You didn't want just a gift, did you? A pair of socks? T-shirt? No, you wanted a great gift. You were disappointed if you didn't get a great gift. Something valuable. Something you really, really liked. Well, we might as well, if we're going to have a reward in God's kingdom, go for a great reward, hadn't we? Why just have a small one? Build up treasure in heaven. Well, if we can find it somehow, some way through the character that we are building, to be able to rejoice when someone persecutes us for the right reasons, then great will be our reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. It's not like it's some new thing that has never been done before. I heard this, well, just this morning, actually, that Someone was visiting with someone over in Colorado City, and uh, they said they didn't know much about us. They hadn't heard too much. They didn't really know much about us, you know, to even form an opinion. But they went on to say that they had heard and were assuming that we were part of the Branch Davidian Waco people. Rejoice! (laughs) Rejoice! No, that wasn't persecution. They're just trying to find which pigeonhole to put us in. But uh, if they brand us that way or think that we're there, uh, there may be others who think the same thing. And uh, we know we're going to be wait We've already said that at some point. It's, it's going to come. It's prophesied. It has to happen if we obey God. So prepare to rejoice when the armies come down upon us and great will be our reward in heaven. Let's look at a few things uh, about this. Luke 11, Luke chapter 11, and I want down about verse 49. Let's see, verse 48. Truly you bear witness, speaking to the Jews here, Or the Pharisees, really, and the Sadducees. Truly you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their sepulchers. You know, the the prophets of God, you built sepulchers for. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. He said he would send prophets, he would send apostles, people that God was using in a very direct manner in fulfilling his purposes on this earth, and that they would not be allowed to escape the persecution of the world because they were obeying God, because they were speaking God's Word, doing what God said needed to be done. Now, that started way back when God first began to have prophets, later on in the New Testament, when there were apostles. And we see at the very end time that those whom God sends to give witness and warning to the rest of the world, that they also will be killed right before Christ returns. So, nothing has changed. If you obey God, you're going to be hated. Now, let me just throw in a point there. If you are not being persecuted and hated, maybe you do not look enough like God yet. If we don't look and act like God, then why would they persecute us? If we look and act like them, there's nothing to persecute There has to be something different about us for people to not want us, not like us, to say evil about us. It all goes back to an overall principle which we've been discussing in various ways and forms now for years. And that is that we cannot be like the culture of this world. We can't be like Babylon. We can't be like Egypt. We cannot be like all of mankind. We have to be very special, very particular, very holy, very different. Now, this comes in a form that probably we've all recognized, and I think I've already mentioned it a little bit in this series, but I want to turn back to Matthew 10. Matthew 10. Verse 34. Well, let's start in verse 33. Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. There are many different ways to deny Christ. One is to simply, outrightly, forthrightly deny that he is of God and is God today. Another is by the way we live, the way we act, the way we speak, talk, and so on. We can deny him indeed. But if we deny him in any way, we're in trouble. Verse 34, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. We did discuss this on the Sermon on Peace and Peacemakers. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Now, when we first began to learn the truth, we were so excited. This is new. This is different. This is true. This is beautiful. I love it. We were so excited to get into the Bible and finally begin to see what it was all about. Because so many people on earth have gone to church all their lives and don't have a clue what the Bible is even about. Maybe we've forgotten that. We understand so much now that it's easy for us to forget that at one time, we didn't know what the Bible was about. I've I've talked to people through my life that have said, well, I read the Bible, but I don't understand it. I I don't know what it's all about. There are a lot of people out there like that. So they quit reading most of it, and they'll read Psalms and Proverbs because it's comforting, but they don't know what it's about. Don't grasp it at all. But there was a time in our lives when we began to understand for a change. God had a purpose for mankind. He had a purpose for you and me. And he had a plan worked out to fulfill that purpose. And it was so exciting to us that we went out and told our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, people in our own house. And we thought they would be all excited too. And they were. But it wasn't the kind of excitement we thought they'd have. It was a negative excitement. And there was screaming not for joy, but screaming because you've gone off the deep end and you've gone crazy nuts on us. What's wrong with you? What do you mean Saturday Sabbath? What are you, Seventh-day Adventist or Jew? We spit that one out. Jew. What have you become all of a sudden? So the persecution started right there in our own households. And he says that we have to put him ahead of our household in that case. Verse 37, He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Any of our relatives that we put ahead of God in any way make us unworthy of God. Essentially, it's idolatry. Because if you put husband, wife, daughter, son, brother, sister, whoever, ahead of God, then that is idolatry. Because it is putting a God ahead of God. That's why he says this. We're not worthy of him if we put anything ahead of him. So we might find that we have to leave father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, in order to obey God. You know, and thousands of people did that back in the 50s and 60s over the misunderstanding of divorce and remarriage. Now, yes, the Bible is very, very limited in allowing divorce and remarriage, especially in the New Testament. I did an entire paper on that, which is, I think, on the website. If you want to review it and see just what the conditions are for New Testament Christians. Very, very limited. And there were people who did separate, thinking that they had to, and for the wrong reasons. Some separated for right reasons. But they were willing. That's the point I'm trying to make. They were willing to do that for God. Now, we haven't had much of that in the last 20, 30 years. But think about it. You might really, really love your mate. But what if you actually had to separate to obey God? Are you that committed? Now, I'm not talking about those who might be looking for a chance to get out of it here. I'm talking about the ones that really love their mate and wouldn't want to get out of it if they could. Would you be willing? If you really felt, for righteousness' sake, it had to be done. Verse 38, He that takes not his stake and follows after me is not worthy of me. He that binds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Christ Himself, as God of the Old Testament, had a marriage with ancient Israel, and He loved Israel very, very deeply. A love that transcends anything that you and I might feel in our marriages, because He has the capacity to love deeper, wider, more completely, than any of us do. He was totally unselfish, and we are not. Therefore, our selfishness gets in our way and impedes us, and we simply cannot love as much as he loved. But because of Israel's sins, he makes it very clear, he divorced her, put her away, as much as he loved her, because she just simply would not, love Him and submit to Him in the same way, but had her own desires and selfishness and went her own way. He had to do it. He's asking us to separate from our marriage to this world and to Satan and to commit ourselves entirely and totally to Him. And He has only offered that marriage covenant to a very, very few. A total since Adam and Eve down to the first resurrection 144,000 those are the totality of the first fruits revelation 147 that's all that's all that the bride of Christ consists of is 144,000 those are the holy city they are the bride of Christ very clear in the book of revelation you and I have been offered something that is very rare in the annals of human existence Maybe there have been 50 or 60 billion people who have walked the face of this earth. And out of that, only a few tens of thousands have been offered a covenant of marriage. Or, to put it a different way, only a few tens of thousands have been asked of Christ, Will you marry me? And you and I are included in those few tens of thousands. Out of all those billions. But he is seeking total commitment, absolute and total trust and faithfulness. He's been through a bad situation before, and this time it will be absolutely right. There'll be no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing in his perfect bride when she is changed. But he has to see in us a willingness to put him first, to be faithful and true, and to take whatever persecution, whatever shame, whatever our family, our mate, the world, Satan himself does to us. He has to be absolutely convinced and know where we stand. There can be no shadow of turning in us just as there's no shadow of turning in Him, as Hebrews says. That's what we have to become. Now, we're not going to achieve it in this life, but we need to be headed in that direction as fast as we possibly can and get as close to it as we possibly can so that He is willing to put the final, final touches on us before the marriage. We must put on the white garments of righteousness. He tells us, To put those on. Calls it walk by the Spirit or in the Spirit and other places. But it is something we are totally committed to. We mouth that at baptism. I don't know how much we really understood, grasped and grasped it at that time. We were pretty new. We were at that time willing to say, yes, anything you say, we will do. Anything God says, I'll do it. But we found since then that he says a lot of things we have trouble accomplishing. Difficult. spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So we have our troubles, we have our problems, but we've got to be working on righteousness. And then, if we receive persecution, we consider the source, and we do whatever we need, whatever is necessary, to be faithful and true and loving to our future bridegroom. Our foes will start out as members of our own family. And in the transition that is going on right now in the church, we're experiencing to some degree the very same persecution we suffered from our relatives and friends when we first started coming to a knowledge of the truth at all. And that is that we, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, there are those who are stuck in one spot and are unwilling to learn and to grow, and they despise us, they laugh at us, they say we're crazy because of some changes that we have made, and I'm sure will make, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. When? Where does it say you're ever to stop growing in both race, favor, and knowledge? Nowhere. Because there's no one alive who understands everything in this book yet. I think we've made a lot of progress in the last few years, and certainly we had a basic good body of understanding before the church ever came apart, but we have a long way to go. There is much, much more to understand. Read through it. Do you understand everything that's in there? No. There are a lot of areas that are still gray, or you still scratch your head, or say, I don't know what that meant. Why does it say that? If we keep studying and praying and thinking and putting it into practice, then God will grant more, and we'll come to have greater knowledge of our Savior and of His Father. So we'll be persecuted as we grow by those who are unwilling to grow. So that's in the family kind of still, isn't it, really? The body of believers says in in, uh, Daniel 11 that those who forsake the covenant will have intelligence with the beast and that our own family of spiritual believers will turn against us. Very clear. No question about it. Will happen. Already is happening, it just will get more intense as time goes on. So, if you're lily-livered and got a big yellow streak down your back, I'd say, bail out now. But if you want great reward in the kingdom of God, hang in there, become righteous, and expect persecution. It will come. Guaranteed. We'll see that here in a moment as we continue this. So it starts in our house. Where does it go? Let's go to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. David cried out a lot. He had a lot of enemies. Psalm 7, O Lord my God, in you do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. He had trouble. He had enemies on every side. And he said, I'm going to put my trust in you. That's what I just said in a different way. Our total trust, our total faith, our total belief has to be in him. In every aspect of life. Summarize that by saying with our health and our wealth. Our trust ultimately has to be in him. Even to our own life also. I mean, if you can't trust in with these physical things here on the earth to do as He said He would do and obey Him and He will bless you accordingly with health and wealth and everything that is attached to that. If we cannot do that, how can we trust Him to say, I'll give you eternal life and change you into immortality? If we can't trust Him on these little physical things, how can we believe in faith that our change will come? And it is when we compromise on all kinds of things in this life that we deter our ability to have the kind of faith that Paul had obtained by the time he died. I finished the course, I fought a good fight, my reward is sure. It is those problems, those spots, those blotches, those wrinkles that we still have that affect our ability to trust and have faith in God. That's why all churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are told, you must overcome our sin, our faults, our weaknesses, are a deterrent to faith and in salvation. See why it's so important to be righteous? With righteousness, with obedience, begins to build faith and trust. You know how it is with human beings. You try to have trust in someone and maybe you meet them and you get to know them a little bit and you think a lot alike and you have a certain amount of trust in that person. Maybe you trust them so much that you marry them and you have faith and belief that they will be faithful, they'll be true, they'll be right, they'll be good, they'll be everything that a husband or wife ought to be. And then somewhere along the line in that relationship, Something happens, it could be many, many different things, that make you wonder. And you don't have as much faith, trust, and confidence, perhaps, as you did before. And then, after maybe a sin, a fault, a weakness appears, how difficult it is to build back that level that was there. You know, knight in shining armor down to worms under the barrel... It's hard to reverse and get back tonight in shining armor again, isn't it? That works both directions. Of course, we all learn over a period of time in marriage that we basically deserve one another. <laughs> if we're honest and realistic. <laughs> because we all have our faults and our weaknesses and our blights. But you know, you trust your teenager, you send them out and say, I want you to be here. And if you go anywhere else, you call me and you tell me where you're going. And I want you in the door at such and such an hour. And if they're 30 minutes late or an hour late or a day late or whatever, there's a level of trust and confidence that just goes away. And you as a parent are frustrated and don't trust them. And then they can't understand what you're so upset about. I was okay. And then they resent the fact that you don't trust them anymore. Who broke the trust? But it's the parents' fault. Hmm. Oh well. Let's not get too far into that. But it's hard to build back that which you destroy. Very, very difficult. So David committed some sins, he did some things that created a rift between him and God and breaches there. And then he pleaded and begged that God would intervene for him. You know, if you haven't done anything wrong and you go to God, it's easy to be positive and bold. But if you've sinned and you know that you've broken His rules... It's harder to go to God, isn't it? It's really much, much harder. And it's accompanied by apologies and guilty conscience and fear and shame and all those things we don't like. It's hard to build back that relationship when we impinge upon it and break it. David did that He's a good example for us in that way. And I won't go through all the scriptures where David was pleading for God to intervene and save him from his enemies and those who persecuted him. But just a small sampling here of what he went through because he wasn't righteous. It says if they persecute you for righteousness' sake, then that's a good thing. Let's see, Psalm 119. I'll hit a couple of them here. Psalm 119, 161. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. So, David was not always persecuted for his sins. Sometimes, because he overall was a righteous man, even though he sinned at times, he was persecuted without cause. No reason for it. But his heart stood in awe of God's word. See, God's word is what separates us from the rest of the hurt. You got a lot of human beings crawling around this planet. And the only difference in those human beings are those who understand God's law and God's way. It's the only difference. If you live God's way, He has a special affection and affinity. In a relationship with you that he doesn't have with the rest of the world. We will stand up for him. His name, his character, his plan, his purpose, his way of life. Then that will separate us from the rest of the world in his eyes and in their eyes. He'll love us for it. They'll hate us for it. You know, you can't be friends with the world. You're either a friend of the world, and if you are, you're an enemy of God. We read that, I think, last week. If you're a friend of God, then you're an enemy to the world. You can't, there's no sitting on the fence. You can't love God in man. You always put God ahead of man. Obey God rather than man. If there's any question whatsoever. Then you can cry out, And God will hear. Isn't that what he tells us over and over? When you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. Quoted from Jeremiah. That's what is required. Wholeheartedness. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Jump in. Get wet all over. You can't live Christianity by sticking your toe in the water. you just got to jump in. All the way. That's the way it has to be. But we're not like that, are we? I'll stick my toe in. I'll stick my finger in. I might eventually put my foot in. Feels cold. Water's inhospitable today. Well he said, just jump in all the way. Whatever your plan finds to do, do it with your might. God loves wholeheartedness. He doesn't like half awake, half asleep, half obedient wishy-washy, in the middle, people that the world can't truly recognize as being godly and God can't truly recognize as being worldly. He says it just leaves a bad taste in his mouth. <coughs> can't handle it. He wants wholeheartedness, total commitment. He wants us to be so different from the world that they have no choice when they see the light shining in their face, that they hate it and want away from it. Psalm 143, verse 3. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has smitten my life down to the ground. He has made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore, is my spirit overwhelmed within me, my heart within me is desolate, discouraged, frustrated, had a difficult time handling the persecution. So what did he do? I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch forth my hands to you. My soul thirsts after you as a thirsty lamb. So he knew the answer to persecution, to depression, to difficulty in life. And that was to turn to God, to think about what God has done, how he's done it, I went out last night, about midnight, Look at the stars. Porch lights kind of got in the way, but if I get just right, I was able to see the stars. Tremendous panoply of stars last night with the Milky Way out and everything. And you just had to sit in awe and wonder at someone who could create the entire earth and the universe around it. All those stars out there. Just an incredible display. Awesome. You know, mankind thinks he's really done something if and when he walks on the moon. It's pretty close to us in terms of outer space. And we we think it's incredible if we can count the things, the planets that just orbit around the earth. There's so much out there we don't know. So awesome and so large, so huge. Millions and billions of light years away. And you look at all that and you have to be inspired that God is a lot bigger than we are. And I was lying in bed this morning reading, preparing for today. And I had a dog and a cat curled up against me. You know, here's here's the contrast between the beauty of the heavens laid out and then a simple little animal that God has created. I say simple, they're pretty complicated really. But by comparison, simple that's so trusting and so loving, and they feel at home when they're lying by a big old ugly meat. You know? They've chosen me as the leader of their pack, and they want to be just as close to me as they can get. It's amazing. The, the, the faithfulness, the love that is in a simple animal. And then it talks about how our bodies are so fearfully and wonderfully made. How can dirt get up and walk around and talk and listen and hear and see and do? Because that's all we were is dirt. It took someone very special to convert that dirt into you and me. Fearfully and wonderfully made, incredibly made, all the various systems that work within our bodies. So that's what David would do when he got down, depressed, discouraged, frustrated, persecuted. He began to think about God. He began to meditate on all his works. Think about him, and then he would be encouraged enough to stretch forth his hand to him and cry out for closeness to God. He's the answer to all our problems, stated, I think, by Paul. Uh, in Philippians, and I uh, can't think which translation puts it that way that really makes it clear, Philip's translation, the incredible love he has toward us. And you know, when you, when you think about the skies and the trees and the water and the flowers and, and everything, He must have incredible love to create all those things for us. We disobeyed Him and then He created some other things we don't like so much. Tumbleweeds, uh, goat heads, stickers, thorns, cactus. Well, those things were added or we were turned out in amongst them as a result of our sin. But that's not the way he made the garden to start with. He made it where everything was beautiful and perfect. Just the right temperature, just the right food, just the right comforts, everything perfect. We need to muse on those things when we get down. That's the way you get out of depression. Really? It's the way out of depression. If you can simply trust and believe God who made you. I read something the other day someone sent me. Well, it said in the 50s or 60s and 70s, people took drugs so the world would look weird. And now, they take Prozac so that a normal, so that a weird world looks normal. I'll get it spit out here in a minute. The world's gone weird. Now we're trying to make it look normal, so we take drugs for that. So, either way. But that's not the answer. The answer is to do what David did. Think about God. Think about what he's made. What he has in mind. What the plan is. And if you can really get your mind on God and off your miserable, wretched, selfish, self-centered self, then you can come out of depression. It isn't drugs you need. It's God you need. But we get so focused on self... So, we have trouble doing that. How did I get from persecution to there? Three easy steps, I guess. Start talking. All right, let's see. We've seen David's troubles. He was a king and a prophet. Let's go on down to the book of Acts, Acts 7 wasn't very long after the New Testament church started. Well, actually probably minutes or an hour or so after the New Testament church started there in Acts 2, the minute that God began to interact by showing tongues of fire, men who had been cowards and running from Christ, turning around and standing up and speaking boldly of the Messiah, wasn't very long when people said, these guys got to be drunk. The New Testament church had just been born and hadn't even been dried off yet. And they said, these guys got to be drunk. They're nuts. So it started right away. Then it got worse. (coughs) Chapter 7 of Acts. Then said the high priest, are these things so? And he said, men, brethren, and fathers hearken... The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Sharan. That isn't what I wanted. Okay, let's just go to chapter 8 then. And Saul was consenting to his death. This is where Stephen was stoned, killed for preaching Christ. Saul was consenting to his death. He agreed with it. I'll go along with that. Give me a rock, I'll help. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Persecution became so strong, and they were stoning them, killing them, that they just scattered (laughs) like birds in a flock when you throw a rock in the middle of it. Here, there, and everywhere. The, The heat, the pressure was so great. But they had to flee for their very lives. So they carried Stephen to his burial. And those who were persecuting the church said, Yeah, got rid of one more. That shut that mouth up. All agreed with it. So, it started right away. Chapter 11, verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as uh, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but to the Jews only. So they scattered out around the Mediterranean from there, couldn't stay in Jerusalem, but they didn't shut up. They just went and preached it somewhere else. They set the example somewhere else. They didn't deny Christ. They went ahead and preached, but they went somewhere else to do it because they would have been killed if they stayed where they were. Chapter 13, down in verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. So the Jews stirred up The women and kids, they stirred up the men, they stirred up the leaders, the rulers, everyone against Paul and against Barnabas, anyone who was trying to speak the truth. And they actually kicked them out of the city, out of their coast, said, Get out of our country. Go away. We're deporting you. They had to run for their very lives. If they had stayed, they would have died. That's just the way it worked. Now let's go to John 5. John 5. Here, let's pick it up. Verse 16. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay Him because He had done these things on the Sabbath day. He healed. Made somebody's life better. Took away their pain, their misery, their hurt on the Sabbath. And He was persecuted for it. Now, who was doing the healing? The Father in heaven. He was the one that had that power and gave it to His Son on this earth. But He was the one that was reaching down from heaven and doing the healing at that point through Christ. Persecuted for that. Can you imagine it? You help somebody. They're blind, maybe. They're deaf. They can't walk. And you say, be healed. Or rise up, take your bed, and walk. And everybody around begins to persecute you and try to kill you for it. Isn't that incredible? John 15. Here I want verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. If they did what I said, they'll do what you say. But if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. We heard it in the sermonette today about some of the things they did to our Savior. Hanging Him up, giving as much misery and hurt and pain as they could in any way imagine to do to Him. And if they persecuted Him... They will persecute us. It is coming. 2 Timothy 3. Do you think there's a chance you might get out of being persecuted if you obey God? 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Yes, and all, everyone, all, that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer Persecution. You cannot obey God and escape persecution. It is automatic. It is axiomatic. It is a given. It's a done deal. However you want to express it. If you look like, act like, talk like the Messiah, you will be persecuted. No way around it whether it be family, whether it be rulers, whether it be the general populace, ultimately, as we'll see, the whole world. Let's go to Hebrews 11. This is a chronicle, this chapter, of people who obeyed God, who were close to God, who did God's wishes, who did work for God, who fulfilled His purpose in themselves. Let's pick it up in... Verse 4, Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God himself testifying of his gifts. God made it clear that Abel's sacrifice was righteous, good, holy, right, for the right reasons, right purpose, right kind of sacrifice. It was a good thing. And Abel is called Righteous Abel in Scripture. Had God's accolades, had God's backing, had God's approval, did everything apparently that God wanted him to do in terms of that sacrifice, at least. And what happened? He had a brother that persecuted him, he was killed. First person murdered out of the people on the face of the earth. And the reason he was murdered was because his his brother was jealous and envious of what he did that was right and good and proper. World's first casualty. Did what was right and was killed for it. Didn't take very long, did it? When did persecution start? Adam and Eve immediately persecuted each other the moment they departed from God's way. Satan got in there right away, didn't he? Broke that up. Made the marriage miserable. It probably remained miserable for some 900 years. Life is too long for that kind of life. People today... Think they've really accomplished something if they live together 50 years. The age we live in these days. And that 50 years is full of trial, trouble, persecution, difficulties, working at making a marriage work. And you can make it work successfully and happily to one degree or another. But there are always thorns among the roses, aren't there? Can you imagine living with someone for 900 years? Especially when they have warts. Of various kinds. Do you begin to get a little insight there as to why Christ says, if I'm going to have to live with you forever, you're, you're going to have to kind of be this way? You know? This this isn't just 50 years. This is forever more. I want my bride to be just the way I want her, and I don't want to spend the next 46... Trillion years trying to straighten her out. He says, I want you to get it right now. See why we need to think about the standard that God sets? Abel got it right. Now, in this life, Abel died for it because he had a brother that was jealous and envious. But he's going to be in the kingdom of God and live forever in happiness as part of the bride of our Lord and Master. Can you beat that? I think that's pretty good. Great is his reward in the kingdom of God. Let's go on down a little bit here. I don't want to recount all of this, but those areas where it talks specifically about persecutions... Verse 33 of Hebrews 11. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness. Interesting, working righteousness is a part of this. We receive persecution for righteousness. Great is our reward. They stopped the mouths of lions. I think an obvious reference to Daniel. He prayed to God in his window. He wouldn't bow down to the image. And he was persecuted for it. So much so that the king said, all right, then throw him to the lions. Quench the violence of fire. Reference probably to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Walked around in the hottest fire they could build. Weren't sins, didn't even smell like smoke when they came out. They set a righteous example. Now, in those cases, God intervened, didn't he? I think it's very interesting that Isaiah, Abel, a lot of others that we could name, were killed. And I'm just going to name a bunch down here who were. But it is interesting that God preserved alive some people in the book of Daniel. Daniel is an end-time book. And we have promises that if we obey God and find favor with Him, He is going to deliver and protect us at the end. We'll get to those scriptures here in just a little while. Interesting that it is in the book of Daniel and in that particular story because it has some impact upon us today, The Daniel being an end-time book that is sealed until the time of the end. They escape the edge of the sword. The sword is brought as what? Persecution against who you are and what you believe and what you're doing. They'll come after us with the sword. All these things that are listed here that the prophets and the apostles went through, We're going to face here at the end as well. Out of weakness were made strong. Waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Well, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. We're going to have people tortured who go into great tribulation today or are part of the Church of God today. They're going to have to go through torture, unimaginable torture, and then be killed. Not accepting deliverance. Not saying, yeah, I'll deny God, I'll deny what I believe, I'll work on Sunday, I'll be there. Isn't it better to live than to die over Sunday? Or whatever else it might be. You ready to have your fingernails pulled out? not to work on the Sabbath. What's happened to others, and they didn't accept deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So there are good, better, and best, and worse resurrections. I don't know that we fully understand the order of resurrections and how many there are, But it is very clear from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that there is an order of resurrections and that some resurrections are better than others. Had these people accepted deliverance physically, they would have been in a resurrection to death. There are some people who teach that there is no resurrection of death, but being in the kingdom of God in the first resurrection is a whole lot better than what they would have faced. And that is eternal death. And that eternal death has to come after a resurrection. I think that's clear right here. Revelation 20 is a little unclear, but don't buy the idea that there is not a resurrection where you're resurrected before being mercifully killed, having seen what you missed out on. God will... Make those people be a witness and see. That's what the great gulf is between Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man could see into the kingdom of God. He could see those people who had been in the first resurrection, and he was about to burn up and die. So he had consciousness and could see the difference between what they received and what he received. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Not just killed, but laughed at, mocked at, beat. Paul went through beatings, went through stonings. That's persecution for righteousness. Yes, even bonds, imprisonment. Peter was in jail, in prison. Paul was in prison. Others were. They were stoned, like Stephen, They were sawed asunder from one end to the other like Isaiah apparently was. Were slain with a sword. Had their heads, their legs, their arms, whatever, chopped off. Whether they cut your head off immediately or whether they chopped pieces off because they hated you. And then cut your head off finally. is neither here nor there. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. Skin a goat or a sheep, wrap it around you to try to stay warm. Probably didn't have the wherewithal to tan it even. Just a dry hide that they wrapped around themselves. Being destitute, afflicted, tormented, in danger of starvation, in danger of dying from heat stroke, from cold, just wrapping around them whatever they could find. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, finding shelter wherever they could find it. Persecuted, hated, sought out people on horses, camels on foot, looking for them, trying to kill them, doing everything they could to extirpate them from the face of the earth. That is the history of those who would obey God. That is the future of those now who will obey God. And if they are in tribulation, this great one right at the end, They cannot accept deliverance. They must accept whatever is done to them. Satan will be turned loose on them. And his military minions will come after them. And they will persecute, torture, and destroy them in any possible way. It has been done in the past. It is scheduled to be done in the future. These all, having obtained a good report (coughs) through faith, Received not the promise. They don't have eternal life today, but they have a good report of God. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect, mature, immortal, perfect. They're waiting in their graves for you and me to finish whatever's going to be done to us. If they can, they will kill us in the most tortuous way they can devise that's what they'll do. Just around the corner, too, isn't very far away. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let's go to Revelation, I think, 17.6 is what I want. Revelation 17, verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. This is the harlot woman. Our people. Our nation. This Christian nation that we live in, that we like to call a Christian nation, is very unchristian. And she will be drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great awe that she could do what she is going to do. Our own nation, our own people will persecute those who would obey God. Let's go back to Daniel 8. Daniel 8. We've referred to this several times lately, but I'd like to go back here and review it briefly in this context. Daniel 8 talks here about the ram and the he-goat fighting each other. I think that this is a parallel and a prophecy of America today, and how she will go in and destroy Iraq, then Iran, and then have her own little horn knocked off, and be divided into four different pieces, our nation broken up, its sovereignty destroyed, explains that down at the end of the chapter. But this little horn that will come up among the four divisions of our nation, as I see it at this point, is going to come after us. Uh, Let's see, verse 11. He had magnified himself even to the prince of the hosts, or the leader of God's people. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. And I heard one saint say to another saint, How long is this going to be, this desolation, the sanctuary defiled? Let's not get into that. We don't have time, but let's go on down to verse 23. He's explaining this, how he will not have the power that the nation had, but it'll be four kingdoms, verse 22. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, the four leaders of the four partitions of the country it's talking about here, when the transgressors have come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences, He's from the occult, like some of our leaders today are occultic, And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. It comes from Satan. And he shall destroy fearfully or wonderfully, and shall prosper in practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. That's the church. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, witchery, sorcery, And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He will say that he is going to start a peace process. And the way that you can have worldwide peace is destroy anyone who obeys God. That's going to be his attitude. That he shall be broken without hand. God will take care of it in the long run, but in the short term... He will think that the way to bring peace on earth is to destroy anyone who obeys Almighty God in heaven. Revelation 12. Well, let's don't go there yet. Let's go to Matthew 24 first. Keep this a little more sequential. Matthew 24, we're getting close to the end of it. Christ here gives a prophecy about the end time. And when will all these things happen, as disciples ask him. Verse 5, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. They may say he is Christ, or they may claim that they are Christ. I think there will be someone who comes at the end who will claim to be Christ having returned to this earth and will deceive the whole world. And you should hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. We're seeing some of these hap- things happen, but he says, don't be troubled, don't be bothered by it. For nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences, earthquakes in different places. And over the last six months, we have seen an enormous increase in all of the things that we read right here. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. Then's when you might be in trouble. And so don't worry about all these other things, but then they're going to turn it on you. And shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all people for my name'sake. Now that's quite a challenge there in Matthew 5, isn't it? That we come to have the character of God, the commitment to God... To do all those things that verses 3 through 9 of Matthew 5 tell us to do, and then be willing to accept persecution, martyrdom, death. Enjoy knowing that you have a better resurrection awaiting you. How incredible. Don't seek to save your life on this earth, or you'll lose it for sure. Seek to give it, to spend it to use it to God's glory and it will be given to you eternally. There's no comparison. We fight. We spend all our money to try to save ourselves another three to six months to a year on this earth in pain and low-quality life rather than trust in God and if we die, have a better resurrection. It's amazing what human beings will do. Just to try to preserve this life Because this is the one they're looking through and going, looking at and going through. And it is for lack of vision and knowledge that God's people perish. Many shall be offended, shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Members of the church are going to hate one another and betray each other to the death. He's one of them. Are you? Oh, no, I used to be, but I got over it. I'm a new little one-world order boy now. But he's one of them. Go get him. Daniel 11. They will collude with the beast. They will do everything they can to destroy us and hate us and betray us. Our own brothers in the church. Now let's go to Revelation 12. Revelation 12. You think man's bad. See what happens when Satan is cast down. He goes before God's throne as the accuser of the brethren right now. Anything you and I do, or even don't do, that he thinks he can pin on us, he goes before God with it. Can't hide it. Satan sees it. He's the accuser of the brethren. Verse 10 of chapter 12. He's going to be cast down... But we're going to overcome him, verse 11. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives to the death. Isn't that what I just said in Matthew 24? We're willing to give up this physical, we're willing to die for eternal life and to be the bride of Jesus Christ. (laughs) It takes pretty heavy commitment, doesn't it? But he has to know. He has to know that if He's going to live with you and me forevermore throughout all eternity, that we're willing to give our life for Him. He gave His for us. Is it too much to ask that we commit ourselves that deeply for Him? I don't think that's too much at all. I think we should expect that. He came and gave it voluntarily for you and me. And he asks us to be willing to do the same thing. Now, that is our faith. That is what is designed for us. It was designed that Christ would come to this earth, live for 33 and a half years, and die for us. That was the plan. It worked out that way people and Satan were quite willing to kill him, and did. Now, the plan is that at the end, the whole world will worship the beast, and only a very few will stand up against it. And Satan, and almost everyone on earth, will adopt the idea that the only way we can absolutely have a total millennial peace would be to destroy every last one of them. So that is the plan. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea! For the devil has come down to you having great anger, because he knows that he has but a short time until he's chained by the fit man. And when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Those who had Christ living in them, who had come to have the mind of Christ, who had brought their thoughts into captivity, who had lived up to the standard of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he will be so angry... He's been accusing us before God, and God would say, yes, but my son, right here at my right hand, went down, and God died for those people, and his blood drained from that stake down into the ground, and through that, they are forgiven those sins. You can't touch them. Your accusation is empty because that sin is gone. They may have done it, but it's wiped out. Why are you bringing it up to me? It's covered. It is the glory of God to cover a sin. It is the glory of man to uncover it. How many times has someone run up to you and said, Have I got a story for you? Tom didn't sin! How many have run up to you and said, Joe didn't sin. Joe did good today. No, they get all excited and come up to you and say, you all know what Tom did? Tom sinned. Now when Satan brings up our sins before before our Father, what are you talking about? The blood of my son just washed across here and I don't see any sin. But it's the glory of man to spread it, to tell it. You know what he did 30 years ago? 40 years ago? Two days ago? We like to tell it. I guess it makes us feel better about ourselves if somebody else did worse than we did. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And if we accuse our brethren, then we are like Satan. We're not worshiping God, whose glory it is to cover a sin. That's His glory. If you want to be like God, you need to be like a cat in a sandbox, trying to cover all the sin you can find, digging frantically to cover a sin. Kind of an earthy analogy here when I'm saying something dramatic, but... It reminded me of the old story about the cat that had the castor oil, and he had three people, three cats out, digging, three cats covering, and two searching for more territory. (laughs) Now we need to be some of those that are doing the covering. Scratching to cover the diarrhea of our brethren as best we possibly can. Because Satan is digging to uncover it. It's just that simple. And it's just that crude. Satan loves to uncover anything that is dirty, filthy, ugly, smells or looks like none. That's what he wants to do. And when we do it, we're like Satan. when he comes down, he's going to have great wrath, knowing that he has but a short time to uncover all those who obey God and are under the blood of Christ and kill them, <clears throat> wipe them out. When the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth Christ in her life. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, from the face of the serpent. So for three and a half years, he's going to be going about the earth, seeking whom he may devour and find everyone who has any light of God in him and kill them all. The serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood or the, the army. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the army which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was angry with the woman. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So only a small number of the church are going to be protected. I could go back through all the scriptures and show that there will be a faithful remnant that bring themselves out of the world and are protected. And that even they are separated when it comes to time to go to the place of safety that this is talking about here in Revelation 12. Be a final cut like a sports team. And you know, all they have a cut, and then they have another cut, and then just before the season starts, they have the final cut. So God has several cuts involved. He is only going to protect a remnant. <clears> Ten percent, <throat> basically. And then Satan is going to go out and try to kill the ninety percent that are left behind. he will be turned loose on them. See, that's the plan. And only a small amount are able to escape the plan. That's why he says in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all of these things that are coming. Satan has your torturous death, torturous death plan. The New World Order will love that plan, they will accept it, and they will go out to accomplish it count it all joy that you will be persecuted for God, for Christ. Because you could attain to a better resurrection. Now there's a little bit of a warning. Let me see if I can cover about three more very quickly. Matthew 13. Maybe that was a good place to stop, but we need a little bit of sobering right here in a different way perhaps. Matthew 13, this is the tale, the uh, parable of the sower and the seeds. I won't go through the whole thing, but let's look down at verse 18. Hear you, therefore, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. Uh, but he that receives the seed into stony places, the same as he that hears the word, And hears it with joy, yet he is not root in himself, but he endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. That's the warning that Matthew 24 gives. But there'll be many offended and hate one another and betray one another to the death because they were there a while. But they couldn't take the pressure. When the persecution, trouble, tribulation starts coming, they get offended. They turn the other direction. I'm not willing to give my life for this. I'll turn in somebody else and let them give their life for it so I can save mine. This is brought out in many different ways by different examples in the Bible. Let's go to Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 14. <clears throat> I'm in First Corinthians. I won't work. Romans 12, verse 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Isn't that what it says there in Matthew 5, 10, 11, and 12? Count it joy. If they persecute you, if they trouble you, rejoice. Why? Because they're persecuting him for righteousness' sake, and Abel could have rejoiced as he saw his brother Cain lowering that sword or that club or however he did it <clears throat> on his head If he knew he would be in the kingdom of God. Peter, James, Paul were crucified. Some of them upside down. John, it says, was dropped in a barrel of boiling oil but not hurt. Because they believed it. They lived it. They were willing to give up this life for a world tomorrow. Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? How can it be done? What would it take for you to be separated from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, distress, persecution, famine, you get hungry. Oh, yeah, I'll work on the Sabbath if you'll feed me. Would God have me die instead of work on the Sabbath? Yes! Of course He would have you die rather than work on the Sabbath for food. We'll work for food, not on Saturday. We'll work for food any day but the Sabbath. Hold that sign up when things get tough. See how long you live. What's it going to take? Peril? The threat of death? The sword? Sword is pretty heavy persecution. What would it take? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's the plan, that we would be sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You could say, who won? That individual Christian or the New World Order? Well, the New World Order won. Christian's head's off. No, the Christian's going to have the last say. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels, principalities or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there you have it. He'll love us all the way through. And if we love him with the same intensity that he has for us, then it doesn't matter. Persecution, the sword, famine, we will not give up God's way. There have been people in Worldwide Church of God who traveled to see kings and princes of other nations who would eat creepy, crawly, unclean things just to have good favor and be allowed in the banquet with the rulers of China and Japan. There was no sword. How easily do we give up? God, for physical comfort and the approbation of men. God had to spew that out. <clears throat> we have to live up to the standard of God. Nothing can separate us from His love. <clears throat> he will love us till death do us part, and He will give us life back and love us forever. Are we willing? to die once for him. If we do, if we're willing to, even if we escape it by the grace of God, if we've shown willingness and commitment, we will have great reward in the kingdom of God.